0: Good to see you this morning. My name's Nathan, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Antioch Church, and it is a pleasure and it is a privilege uh, to get to look with you together at God's word this morning. So uh, in case you missed it or in case you're new, we are currently in a teaching series. We're teaching through the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is essentially this ancient statement of faith, a statement of faith that has been affirmed by Christians all over the world, really since some of the earliest days of the Christian Church, which means that, that literally billions of people, billions of Jesus' followers throughout history have known and have read and have proclaimed this creed. And so in some sense, there's this really neat thing that's happening in that we are joining with the voices of history, recognizing that, that our faith uh, it, it isn't something new, right? It isn't something like flashy and edgy and whatever. It's, it's ancient. It's, it's sacred, it's true. And it's unchanging. We believe. We believe. We've been working through this creed together now for seven weeks, and now we've worked our way right to the very middle of it, okay? And so today's line in the creed is as follows. at the top of the banner over there to the left. On the third day, he rose again. As you may have guessed already from our scripture reading today, we are talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So usually Easter comes in the spring. Uh, This morning, you guys are getting it right in the fall, okay? So enjoy that, Easter in the fall. Um, To help me prepare myself for this uh, early Easter celebration, uh, my kids and I have eaten nothing but marshmallow peeps for the last 24 hours, right? Uh, So um, I say that's what happens in preparation for early Easter. In reality, that's what happens when mom goes away at the Antioch women's retreat. Uh, Just Sugar, right? Sugar. So, just kidding about that, guys. It's been closer to 48 hours because she left on Friday. So, uh, anyway, the resurrection, right? Resurrection of Jesus. It's a big deal. And I think it could easily be stated that the resurrection is the single most important doctrine that we have in the Christian faith. The reason for that being that the entire rest of our faith stands uh, on the resurrection, Right? It's the resurrection ultimately that proves Jesus' divinity. It was the resurrection that proved that God's plan of salvation actually worked. It's the resurrection that proves that death doesn't have the final word. It's the center of our faith. But also, it's the absolute central statement of the Apostles' Creed, this is a little bit uh, nerdy, but also I think it's kind of cool. So just indulge me for a second here. I'm going to talk for a moment about ancient literary composition. <laughs> that sound interesting? Probably not, but I promise it's kind of cool. So here's the deal. Uh, in modern-day communication, right? In our communication today, if you are writing something or, or you're reading uh, like a position paper, where do you make your big point, right? You either do it right at the very beginning or maybe you hold off and make your big point right at the end, right? So your big idea, it's either the hypothesis that you explain sort of right out the gate at the beginning, or else maybe you're you're saving your big point for sort of the powerful conclusion where you're going to bring down the big, you know, thunder right at the end. But you see, in, in ancient literature, it was different. In ancient literature, you made your most important statement, your most important point right in the middle of what you were saying. It was literally your central statement, your central idea. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus in the Apostles' Creed. Not only is the resurrection the center of, of the Jesus stanza in the Creed, more than that, it's, it's the dead center of the entire Creed. So I actually wrote it out for you up on the screen so you can see. It's right there, right? It's right in the middle. You guys see it? Here's my point. The Creed, okay? Okay By its own composition was designed to draw our peak attention to this line that on the third day he rose again. This is the center. This is the core of what we believe as Christians. And so it's something that we should take seriously. Guys, resurrection is a big deal. (laughs) So let's make a big deal out of it today, all right? Does that sound good? Let's do it. Okay. First, let me pray for us. (sighs) Heavenly Father, as we come uh, together this morning uh, to your word, we also acknowledge that we are coming together under your word, recognizing that your word is not only true and it's not only trustworthy, but ultimately it's also an authority uh, in our lives that we submit ourselves to. And so, my prayer this morning, God, is is that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us. God, the same the same spirit that that inspired not only these events long ago, but also inspired the the writing of these words long ago. God, may that same Holy Spirit this morning inspire our reading and understanding of this ancient sacred text in a way that doesn't just inform our minds with cool ideas, but does the deeper work of actually transforming our hearts and lives more and more into the image and likeness of your son. God, we invite you, uh, use this morning for your glory, and use it for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Interestingly, uh, in the same way that that no other doctrine of the Christian faith is more central than the resurrection of Jesus, so too there's probably no other Christian doctrine that has caused more speculation and more doubt and more inquiry and, and even more controversy. Than the resurrection. You see, very few people, very few people today doubt that Jesus was a real person, an historical figure who lived on the earth. Very few people doubt that. And more than that, very few people doubt that Jesus actually died, like at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, that he was crucified, right? But there's a lot of people today who, who doubt the resurrection or who dismiss entirely the possibility that Jesus could have risen. From the grave on the third day, and in reality, I'm am sympathetic uh, to those who doubt. I'm sympathetic to the skeptics, right? Um, in part because I think I, I, I am one. <laughs> uh, to their credit, the reality is like people don't people don't rise from the dead, right? Like that's not something that we see very often. But you see, uh, I have come. To believe personally. With every, with every fiber of my being, as crazy and implausible and as unlikely as it may seem, I believe that Jesus did literally and physically rise from death. And this is not something that I've simply like sort of uh, resigned myself to believe and it's it's not something that i'm just taking on blind faith as if uh, i'm throwing reason out the window right no the, the truth is there is an incredible an incredible amount of what i would argue is clear evidence that points to the veracity of the resurrection of jesus and i believe that if you uh, would would actually take the time right and 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 if you would actually uh, honestly study the evidence, if you give it a good hard look and and a real examination, I think that you'll find yourself believing it as well. That's what I think. There's absolutely uh, no way that we would have time to unpack uh, all of the evidence of the resurrection this morning. So, um... Honestly, in part because it's mostly dudes back there with our kids. And uh, every moment that goes by, like the chances of survival are decreasing. So, um, so we're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to look at one, okay? We're going to look at one evidence or one compelling reason uh, that I believe in the resurrection. And that reason is this. It's the people that it transformed. The people it transformed. You can look at the, at the lives that this Event affected and recognized, man, something big happened here. Something big happened. Have you ever had a transforming moment in your own life? Have you ever had one? Like one of those moments that that you're going to remember it forever and then like once it happened, you you can't ever take it back. You're never going to be the same. Have you had a moment like that? I can remember this was back in uh, February of 2007, uh, and I was standing in this city center. So just out of curiosity, does anybody happen to know where that is? by the pictures. Anybody, anybody? If you know, I will buy you a pint. That's my promise. If anyone? Shout it out. Anyone? Berlin. Berlin. Yes, who, who said that? I owe someone a... There it is. All right, you, sir. Berlin, Germany. That's absolutely right. In February of 2007, my wife and I had just uh, stepped off of a streetcar, a tram, and uh, she got like this wave of dizziness about her. And um, so as a half joke, uh, we decided like, hey, you should probably take a pregnancy test. And as God's greater joke slash blessing, uh, we found out that she was pregnant with our first baby. And uh, that was a lot to take in in that moment, right? Uh, and I would never be the same. Like, I was, I was, a, I was a dad now. It was a transforming moment. Adventure uh, to guess that all of you have had similar transforming moments, so we could recognize some of them are good, right? And some of them are bad. There's things like graduation. It's great. And 9 11. It's bad, but it changes us, right? We've got weddings and diagnoses. promotions, divorce. These are moments that we're never going to forget, and these are moments that change our lives forever. And my point is that the resurrection of Jesus was that moment for a lot of people. It changed them drastically. So this morning, I want to look at three specific groups of people that were transformed by the resurrection, okay? Three groups of people whose lives were changed forever. And the first one is this. The resurrection of Jesus radically transformed his friends. It transformed his friends. You guys remember... You guys remember what happened at Jesus' arrest? What did his disciples do? They ran in fear. They absolutely scattered for their lives. One dude ran away naked, which is a weird story. I'm not sure how that happened, but that's part of the story. Like, they scattered. They ran, right? And then what? Then they denied even knowing him. Peter denies Jesus three times, right? These guys are total cowards. They're disassociating themselves with Jesus at every turn. And then after his death, it was actually more of the same. They kept running. They kept hiding. They were huddling up in this room together, praying for their safety and hiding for their lives and utterly terrified. And then what happens? Jesus shows up. And they were transformed. Something happened to them in that moment that turned their cowardice into courage. They became men and women with a brave boldness. Men and women with a brave boldness that changed the world. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. With their own eyes, they saw Jesus. Not only that, they touched him. They saw that he had conquered the grave. And this was the biggest news. This was the best news ever. And they held on to this news uncompromisingly, even when facing their own bitter end. You see, as the story of Jesus' friends progresses, we find that for the next few decades, the the Jews and also the Romans tried every means possible to get these eyewitnesses to recant the resurrection, right? They tried everything they could to to just tell them, "Can, can you just tell us that you were making it all up? Here's what happened to them, right? Here's the list. They were burned. They were beheaded. They were beaten. They were boiled. They were bludgeoned. They were crucified, Even upside down, they were stoned, they were tossed off of tall buildings, and they were thrown into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions and other wild animals. Almost every single one of Jesus' closest friends were tortured and martyred for their belief, not in Jesus, the historical man, but for their belief in the resurrection. And yet to their graves, not a single one of them ever denied that this was real. It's seen Jesus risen, and it was undeniable. Here's the deal. You know what? You can only cover up a hoax for so long. You know like, the truth has a way of coming out, doesn't it? Had these guys been making it all up, one of them would have spilled the beans, right? When threatened with their own life and death or the death of their children or their family or whatever, one of them would have confessed that it wasn't real. Nobody did. Let me ask you a question. What turns cowards into martyrs? (laughs) What turns deniers into proclaimers? Only a real event. Something real. Jesus' friends saw the risen Christ and it radically transformed them forever. And this transformation, I believe, is unexplainable apart from it actually being true. Jesus' friends were radically transformed By this resurrection, okay. Now, some of you, again speaking to uh, skeptics in the room, um, are maybe thinking, "Yeah, okay, right." But but maybe maybe Jesus was just like a master manipulator, right? Like maybe he was like uh, like some of these cult leaders that we've that we've heard about over the years. Maybe he was so influential that he actually brainwashed his friends. Right? Like like if he'd really been able to convince them prior to his death that he was God, then maybe they would have been willing to do anything or say anything for him. Right? It's a good point. It's a good point. That objection, though, that point leads me to the second group of people that were transformed by the resurrection, and that is Jesus' family. Okay? Jesus' family. You see, the thing about family is that nobody knows you better, right? Like, nobody knows the worst side of you and the best side of you better than your family. And Jesus' family was no different. Jesus had a mom and a dad, and he had a whole slew of younger siblings. And so while I'm sure that they all loved him, being a younger brother myself, I'm also sure that they didn't always like him very much. You know what I mean, right? We just ask... uh, how many of you have older siblings that used to pick on you growing up? Yeah, several of you. Okay, good. Honesty Hour, how many of you were the older sibling that used to pick on your younger sibling? A few of you. Right? Father, forgive them. Uh, here's a little bit of my story. I'm one of five siblings, and I'm the only boy. Okay, And uh, growing up, three of my sisters were quite a bit older and quite a bit bigger than me. For the record, they are no longer bigger than me, a fact for which they are thankful. Um, but, but the result, here's the result of being the only boy with all these big sisters, right? Like I would periodically uh, wake up only to discover that in my slumber, my toenails had been painted bright pink, right? Like I'd been, I'd been graffitied in the night and made to look fabulous in my sleep. And then I'd have to go to school like that the next day, right, that's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Sibling pranks. Can you imagine being a younger brother to Jesus? <laughs> he put demons in pigs, and he could control the wind and the water, right? Like, I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like growing up with him. But this is family. Needless to say, there was some beef in Jesus' family, Okay? There was some beef, there was some tension. And scripture speaks to it multiple times. Uh, Multiple times scripture describes this tension that existed in Jesus' family. Uh, in, In Matthew 13, Jesus says this. He says, only in his hometown right, and in his own household, in his own home, is a prophet without honor. At another point in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 8, there's this, there's this whole crowd that's around Jesus. And then Jesus' mom and, and some of his brothers uh, show up, and they're demanding that they get to talk to him. And Jesus responds saying, uh, no, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and actually do it. <laughs> All right? Those who hear the word of God and do it. What's it. He's preferring the crowds here over his own flesh and blood. That's some tension. There's some tension. My favorite is John chapter seven, verse five, which says of Jesus. It says this of Jesus, for not even his own brothers believed in him. Ouch. Right? Ouch. Not even his own brothers believed in him. So this kind of makes sense to me though. Growing up with someone, I think like once you've shared a bathroom with someone, divinity is off the table for that person, right? You're like, that's, gods don't do that, right? Like, it's, this was Jesus' family, and this was exactly the position that they held to. He's no God until the resurrection. Once they saw him alive again, they were transformed. Transformed from siblings into worshipers, from family into followers. I've uh, I've never worshiped any of my sisters and I've certainly never confused uh, a single one of them for a deity. But if one of them came popping back out of the ground like three days after being killed and buried, I'd have to rethink that position. And I'd have a lot of apologizing to do as well. Um, Jesus' family was radically transformed. Radically transformed. They went from non-believers to worshipers. In fact, two of Jesus' brothers, it was really fascinating to me, went on to not only help to lead the early church in Jerusalem, but two of his brothers even wrote books of the Bible, books of the New Testament, right? James and Jude, written by Jesus' brothers. And as members of his family, I think the only explanation for this is that these people became convinced through clear and incontrovertible evidence that he was, in fact, God, and the resurrection was the proof. Jesus' family was transformed by the resurrection. All right, now you're thinking, all right, all right. Jesus couldn't have tricked family, right? You can't fool, you can't fool your family. So, so maybe he didn't trick them intellectually, but maybe, just maybe, it was their blind love and loyalty to him that, that outweighed their rational thought, right? Maybe it's, it's their blind love and, 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 and loyalty, their allegiance, that caused them to, to say these things. Like, that happens to people, right? Here's the thing. Not everyone who affirmed the resurrection was a friend. Not everyone who affirmed the resurrection was family, and not everyone who affirmed it was blindly loyal to and or in love with Jesus. Which leads me to the third group of people that I want to mention, which is that the resurrection radically transformed Jesus' worst enemies. His worst enemies, right? I think the greatest example of this that we get in Scripture uh, is this guy named Saul of Tarsus, who later changed his name to... Paul, right? Paul was a gnarly dude, right? He was a bloodthirsty persecutor uh, and murderer of Christians. Uh, he was thought by most to be the single greatest enemy of the church of Jesus in the world at the time. And uh, you see, from, from Paul's perspective, this is what he thought about Christians. He thought Christians were a pest to be exterminated. This was a group of people who were spreading these terrible lies about some risen Messiah, people who were propagating heresy and blasphemy, people who were leading good religious Jews away from the true faith, people who needed to be stopped. So Paul viewed it as his personal mission to do just that, to snuff them out. He was doing a pretty good job. He was doing a pretty good job until one day he had a very real encounter with the risen Jesus an encounter that utterly transformed him. As he was walking on the road uh, to Damascus, Paul saw the risen Jesus with his own eyes, and such glory and brightness actually blinds him, right? And he was proven wrong in that moment. And he radically changed allegiances. You see, once you see this resurrected Messiah, there's no way you can deny it anymore. So Paul was converted and uh, he went on to become the most dynamic defender and, um, and expander of the movement of Christianity in the world, even going on to write the majority of the books in the New Testament himself. And in almost every single one of those books, he spends time focusing on what? The resurrection of Jesus. Only A real-life, true encounter could explain a transformation like that. An enemy into a friend, seriously? An opponent into a proponent, right? That's a big change. That's a big transformation. See, the resurrection of Jesus radically transformed his friends, radically transformed his family, and it even transformed his enemies. Not because it was some great elaborate hoax or a really interesting conspiracy or even a really nice idea, but because it was real. It was real. There's been a lot of prophets throughout history, right? There are a lot of prophets back in Jesus' time. There have been many more since then. Do you know what they all have in common they're all dead, right? They're all dead. You can actually visit most of their graves, in fact, right? So you can take a pilgrimage to Medina and go see the tomb of Muhammad. You can do that, right? You can, you can go to, I found this out, you can go to the, it's called the Temple of the Tooth in Sri Lanka and actually see Buddha's literal tooth on display. So it sounds kind of nice, right? Interesting vacation, Um Unfortunately, the uh, Scientologist cremated and then scattered L. Ron Hubbard's uh, remains in the Pacific Ocean. So, um, Actually makes it kind of nice and convenient. You can just remember him next time you go to Newport uh, and sort of see the Pacific Ocean and remember L. Ron Hubbard, right? But Jesus, Jesus, there's no grave. There's no tomb, and there's no specific burial plot. Now, here's, here's the reality, not to, to burst your bubble. If you're going on the Israel trip, you're going you're to love it. Uh, they've got some really good, educated guesses about which tomb might have been Jesus's, and they kind of know the general area. Nobody remembers exactly which one it was, though. Why is that? It's because he walked out of it, right? He wasn't in there anymore. He's not there. It doesn't matter. He rose. He rose. Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith, and um, here's the deal. Either uh, either it is a fact and it happened, and all of this is true, or or it's fiction and it didn't happen, and none of this matters. But what we're dealing with here is a question of historical fact, (laughs) Right? Either it happened or it didn't. It's not a question of opinion. And what I think is funny, and I say funny, what I really mean is concerning. What's concerning to me is, is I, I think that, I feel like um, very few people, especially American people, treat the resurrection of Jesus as the determining criterion in whether or not they believe and whether or not they embrace the Christian faith. I don't think people really consider that. I think most, most people who have uh, who've chosen not to, to, not to believe, not to be Christians, I, th- I think most people have chosen that uh, not because they've honestly considered the evidence, but rather because they don't really like it. You know what I mean? I just kind of don't really like it. Like, I, I mean, I could never do that. I could never be a part of a religion with so many hypocrites and so many judgmental people. I don't, I don't like it. Or, or, like, uh, I don't know, the Bible, it seems to say some pretty, uh, some pretty regressive things, especially about, like, women and sexuality or sin or hell or whatever. Like, I could never be, I could never be a Christian, right? That stuff, that's way, that makes me way too uncomfortable. It's weird. I don't like it. And if that's you, I, I, I'd love to say to you, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know there's some weird stuff, Right? Honestly, there's some stuff in this book that makes me very uncomfortable uh, as well. But here's the deal. like just because just because you may disagree with aspects of Christian morality, or, or, or maybe just because you've been offended by uh, some church people or whatever in, in your story, does that really mean? Does that really mean that Jesus couldn't have risen from the grave? Because you don't like it? It can't be true. Truth, history, is not contingent upon your approval. It's just not. Disliking something doesn't make it untrue. Right? Here's the deal. If it's true that Jesus rose from the grave, then it doesn't matter if you don't like the Bible. (laughs) Like you have to do something with it. You have to do something with it. But if it's not true that he rose from the grave, then you don't have to worry about about any of it. Like if Jesus didn't rise, none of this matters. Paul even says that himself, right? If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, he says your faith is in vain, your faith is futile. Give it up, it's futile. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I believe he did. I believe he did rise, and I believe it does matter. In fact, I think it matters more uh, than you can even imagine. I would even suggest to you that there's there's no question that you're ever going to wrestle with in your entire life that matters more than this question. What will you do with the resurrection of Jesus? what will you do with it? Will you believe it and embrace it and allow it to to shape and transform your life? Or will you dismiss it and look the other way? Guys, this is the question. What will you do with the resurrection of Jesus? More important question than who you marry. A more important question than... uh, if or where you might go to college or what career you want to pursue or how many kids you're going to have or what like what will you do with the resurrection of Jesus why is this so important why is this such an important question because here's the deal if Jesus rose if Jesus rose from the dead then that means that death isn't the end It means that life exists beyond the grave and that one day so will we. This is the Bible's teaching and and the Bible's position is that because Jesus conquered the grave one day we all will rise from the grave. Stumbled across a painting this week. This is in um, Orthodox icon, and um, yeah, I thought it was beautiful and powerful. And in this painting, what you can see is that Jesus has, has broken open the doors of the grave, right? You see the doors, they're falling away, having been ripped off their hinges, right? And I don't know if you can see it from where you're looking, but there's all this stuff flying off the doors and falling down, and, and if you look closely, it's little bits and pieces of like locks and chains and keys, all of these things that that were designed to to keep us in death, to keep us in the grave, right? And there's Jesus busting his way out. And he's not alone, is he? If you notice, he's got a person in in his right hand and his left hand, and he's he's pulling them up out of the grave with him. And and those people are Adam and Eve, which is interesting, right? Our, Our first parents and ultimately symbols of all of humanity. He's pulling them up from the grave with him. And if you really look closely, you realize that that he's actually got them by the wrists, right? He's got them by the wrists, and he's he's yanking them up out of the grave. This isn't Jesus just sort of giving them a hand up, right? He's pulling them, pulling them from the depths of death, right? This is a picture of salvation, of resurrection. And according to Scripture, this is our future. It's our future. I spent some time this week trying to figure it out. I'm not sure who all those other people are. Um, I think the guy immediately uh, to the left of Jesus is maybe John the Baptist. And I only think that because he looks all disheveled and his hair's kind of crazy, right? Like our our explanations of John the Baptist in Scripture talk about him being sort of a a wild dude. So I hope it's John the Baptist. If it is, it means that he got his head back, which is cool. Uh, It's a good deal. So... um, I spent a long time looking at this. (laughs) I spent a long time looking at John the Baptist, and I realized that it sort of looks like he's also wearing Lady Gaga's meat suit, which is a weird artistic uh, choice, but I respect it. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, If Jesus rose, right, if this is true, we will too. And when we rise, either we rise forever to live with God in this this perfect world that he's recreating for us or we will rise to live life apart from him forever. We rise to a life of joy or a life of judgment. But God, but God, in his great love, he sent us Jesus. Jesus son. And you see, Jesus went to the cross, giving his life as a payment for our sin. And then when he rose on Easter morning, it was proof, it was proof that this sin had been paid for in full. You see, through Jesus, God offers us what? Forgiveness and wholeness and life with him forever through Jesus God is reconciling all things including us to himself So I guess I'd ask you one last question like do you want that <laughs> Do you want to be reconciled to God Man I sure do I sure do I'm going to leave you with one last scripture In Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul, again this is the same Paul that was Jesus' greatest enemy turned friend, says this, he says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So let's do that. Right? So let's just do that let's do it right now in fact we're going to make some space to do this together and so the band is uh, going to make their way back up here and they're going to lead us in singing uh, some songs in which we will confess with our mouths the truth of Jesus as our risen Lord we're also going to have the opportunity uh, to come forward to the Lord's table. And as we come to the communion table, we recognize that this is an act uh, that, that simultaneously recognizes our sin and our need for God's grace, but also recognizes his great provision of forgiveness and salvation. As you come to the table, I'd, I'd like you to remember that this isn't only a table of Jesus' death. It isn't only a table of his broken body and spilled blood. It certainly is that. But it's also much more than that. This is a table of celebration, right? Celebration because we know that Jesus is alive. And the risen Christ is waiting to meet us here at this table in a special and powerful way because he's risen He's risen indeed. So I'd like to ask you, would you, would you stand with me and uh, take these next moments to respond as you feel led to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll begin our time in worship. <sighs> Heavenly Father, it's, it's impossible uh, to look at your story, and not see that you are good. And not see the great love uh, that you have for each of us. And so this morning, God, more than anything, I'm thankful for the gift of your son. Jesus, we're thankful for the life you lived and and the death you died, but also we're thankful for your death-conquering resurrection, a new life that you're inviting each of us into. And so my prayer this morning, God, is that we would contemplate the evidence and that you would do the good and beautiful work of sinking your gospel truth deeper and deeper uh, into our hearts and lives, transforming us. We love you. We thank you for your death-conquering love, a love that we need and a love that we have in Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.